everyone, and welcome to Traceability Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Edwards, and today my guest is Daniel Lambert. Daniel is based in Montreal, and he's a marketing and finance strategist, assisting companies in their growth and business architecture and digital transformation. He is currently Vice President of Business Architects at Benchmark Consulting out of Montreal, And he's also a published author, author of The Practical Guide to Agile Strategy Execution, which I, for one, find very interesting as, Daniel, that was sort of my master's thesis was Agile and Architecture. So it'll be a fun conversation today. Welcome. Thanks a lot for inviting me, Tracy. Really happy to have you here. And so typically how we start out here is we sort of go back to the beginning and and ask you to tell your story of how you got your start in uh, your career and in business architecture. Okay, I'm, I'm 58, Tracy, so uh, I'll do a, a fast rewind. I have a master's degree in finance and I been a venture capitalist in enterprise software enterprise uh, for about 20 years and i know a lot about developing and commercial in and doing marketing and deploying complicated b2b applications to uh, small and large companies i've been practicing business architecture for about 5 years and we do business consulting, usually to very large companies between 5,000 and our largest is 400,000 clients. And we also commercialize our software application called Iris Business Architect that does business and architecture mapping on top of making planning and it goes up from business strategy, architecting, project planning, and requirement, agile, epic, and user story, micro planning. Terrific. So you have this degree in uh, finance, and you're working in venture capitalism. And how did that sort of lead you to architecture? What what uh, led you to discover architecture? And what was it about architecture that really sort of drew you in okay when you're a venture capitalist you're not in the team that is developing a new technology and i wanted to be in one of them and not financing one of them or finding good management which is mostly what venture capitalists do and instead i wanted to be part of one and i've tried a few and business architecture is the one where i uh, fit the most because i know a lot about management either uh, finance or or marketing there's a very simple rule of thumb when you're doing venture capital is if you want to stop pouring money into a startup Make sure that the revenues grow. And, and so being good at both is something essential. And, and architect, business architecture is, in brief, digital transformation of companies using software, enterprise software applications. And that's something I know extremely well. So I have spent my career mostly as a business analyst, and much of that work is definitely more on the tactical side. 
And I know that looking more towards strategy and, and that kind of thing and organizational development is sort of the sweet spot for business architecture. So just just really briefly maybe talk about what it took to really segue from one career to another, because I think especially in these times, we've got people that are looking for employment and people who are maybe having to pivot that they didn't necessarily expect that they would need to pivot. And so what was that pivot experience really like for you? Well, when I was a venture capitalist, I managed to make money. I had the positive ROI and everything else, but my partners didn't. So typically there's a carry for venture capitalists and I didn't get one. And and it wasn't because of me. It it was because others uh, were as fortunate as I was and I wanted to be on the other side and 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 be part of the action. So we decided not to raise uh, a second round of financing within our venture capital firm. And this is why I began being an entrepreneur and be on the other side. It was about 10 times more difficult than I thought, but now I get the handle and, and I prefer it because you're closer to the action. Venture capitalists drink and eat their own food and are usually very far away from what really matters. They, all they do all day long is uh, talk about money. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not just about money. It's about finding meaning and... Um, well, in my um, case, it's about uh, making something that, that, that will matter. Note that as a uh, venture capitalist, uh, I was involved with a company called uh, Taleo, and it was sold to Oracle for many billions of dollars a while back, and it was the best deal that I uh, contributed to. And uh, but you know, I wasn't part of it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not the one who made it happen. It's uh, the CEO and his team. And I realized that. And I said, it's, I should try to do something that will last and matter. And that's why I jumped on the other side. I think that's great. And I think I have definitely felt those feelings where you want to be making a difference and you want to be part of something that you know is going to be beneficial for lots of people. And I, and I think lots of folks uh, feel that way these days. So a couple of things that I want to sort of ask about. First, what was it like sort of going out on your own in that entrepreneurial experience? And second, as you go into these organizations, what are some of the questions you're asking and to, to make sure that they're sort of ready for what it is that you can give them? Well, uh, for, when I approach or uh, startups, they wanted money. They wanted to raise money. And that's why they uh, were talking to me. And that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of the company and be uh, part of building the product, not being the product manager, but building the product and, and getting the first customers, which is so difficult to do. And and it it took a few to make it happen. And with Benchmark Consulting and our product, Iris Business Architect, we've managed to uh, make this happen. 
And we also realized that we didn't need that much capital to do it. I think it would have been a lot easier should we have raised capital. But venture capitalist has a uh, bias. I think I had the same bias when I was a venture capitalist. If you're 50 or over, <laughs> it's very difficult to raise capital in a, a very small company. And we realized that after a while and, and refocus uh, accordingly. So you basically bootstrap. Yes. And, and it growing took longer than anticipated. But now we, we've got very good clients. We've got in, in the U.S., we've got FedEx. We've got Optum and United Health Group. These are humongous companies. And we've got a bunch of insurance companies. We've got the TD Bank. We've got the U.S. government. We've got the British government. We're growing. And that's what matters. But it took longer. If we would have had the money, it, it would have been simpler. And we could have accelerated it a lot more. We could have built our features and our product quicker. I, I can definitely understand that as someone who is trying to sort of bootstrap my own sort of side hustle these days. Um, mm -hmm. Everything is always easier with funding. <laughs> um, but it forces you, without funding, it forces you to go where, where it really matters. Uh, in other words, when you've got a lot of money, you try a lot of things knowing that most of them will not work, especially in marketing. And, and, and you, you stop doing that when you're bootstrapping. <laughs> it's got to matter and it, it's got to provide and generate money. And otherwise, you're not going to waste your capital. That is good. The thing is that when you're bootstrapping, you do just about everything. And sometimes mm -hmm. you require help. Right. Especially on the development side. Right. That makes perfect sense. So you kind of called out uh, some very large organizations that you have been working with over the years mm -hmm. at Benchmark. So uh, especially with very large enterprises that agility and flexibility are not always something in their wheelhouse because mm -hmm. they've, they've been doing business under regulations and such for a very, very long time. So what has that sort of been like as you've gone into some of these larger organizations to sort of help them to become more agile and flexible? Well, the story is different uh, with two of our clients. Let's say what we take the TD Bank. They have about 90,000 employees. And we started with one business unit. And, and on the American side of this Canadian company. and. They, they, they were uh, our first, and they were not aware of it. We did not lie to them uh, or anything like that, but they didn't ask, are you a small company? How many are you? Are we the first? They didn't ask, so we didn't tell. So they purchased it, and American, many Americans are forgetting this, but you should remind yourself that you are extremely good in business, in startups, in managing risk, in taking risk. You're the best in the world. 
And you should not forget this as uh, you are often pointing fingers at each other. <laughs> you should stop doing that and remind yourself that the easiest place on earth to uh, do startups is in the U.S. Because my, my client, our first client at the TD Bank, he was an, uh, an American and he said the following. Very, very American style. Okay, Danielle, I'm willing to take a bet on you. And that was it. <laughs> and he probably knew that startups would um, uh, do a, a, an incredible uh, customer service. And we'd be very responsive to whatever they were asking us. But, you know, we later on deployed our software in other business units in the company. And we went in Canada, in Toronto. And they found out that they were our first customer. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, they asked us, how did you do that? And I said, well, I didn't go towards Toronto first. It would have been impossible because Canadians are risk averse, very risk averse. And we do not have many Canadian companies because of that. We have lots of Americans and they're very satisfied, but we wouldn't have started with uh, in Toronto because their mindset is more closed up. And in the case of FedEx, they're humongous, but people are uh, forgetting that they were a startup when I was about 20. And I don't know if many know the story, but they hold a lot of money. They were small. They owed a lot of money. They had a lump sum to repay in form of a uh, debenture, I believe. And they didn't have enough. And the due date was, I believe, a Monday. So they went to Las Vegas with the last amount of cash they had and bet on it. And they were lucky. The founders were lucky. And had enough to um, pay the lump sum of the debt. And then we all know what happened next. They grew and grew, and now they're uh, probably the biggest company in transportation. So, so all I say that it's not because you're humongous that you do not have an entrepreneur spirit. And in their case, they're bundling architecture, business architecture, and enterprise architecture with SAFE which is a corporate agile methodology. Uh, and they are planning their value streams at the high end for one of their business unit. And they do the business strategies. They, they, they do all of that. And then they, they build very detailed value streams and then their enabling capabilities. And then they move downward and then have epics, user stories, and sprints and projects. And they define everything at that level. The, the, the description of epics and user stories are made mostly using words from their business architecture model. So uh, for every word in the description, you can hyperlink and have the description of the world. Uh, what it relates to, how it is measured, documentation about that. And, and so suddenly 
building planning epics and planning user stories is not done with a blank page in front of a subject matter expert. You can do a first draft and then go to the subject matter expert, tweak it, and then out you go. It's a lot quicker, a lot more precise, and a lot less risky. And you save a lot of time. And odds of delivering something that matters to the corporation is much higher. And that's what FedEx is doing in a very entrepreneurial way, despite the fact that there's so you know that there's a lot of users and viewers of our tool there. So a, a couple of lessons learned that I'm hearing there are you with a benchmark and the Iris product, and you sort of a strategic took a strategic risk as far as what you were going to target as far as organizations that you're going to target you the strategic risk was with geography and with a smaller sized unit that was part of a overall larger unit but you sort of started out less risk averse strategic strategic way that then allowed you to scale once you could show the success at the smaller smaller business unit Geographical is, is, is not exactly how I would put it. It's not that well planned, crazy. It's more op- opportunist. We okay. chose to um, do our marketing uh, mostly on LinkedIn and online. And we, we can get very large checks without ever meeting the person. And, and uh, this always surprises me, but I'm sure before paying us and sending us a PO beforehand, they know a lot about us, probably more than we do. And yet, uh, sometimes we have not met beforehand. I think it was the case with uh, the TD Bank. FedEx we met a few times. And, uh, and so it's more opportunistic. We, we let people come to us. And, and it's a numbers game. Many do not pull through, and then some do, and then you focus on those that find value in what you're proposing. And, and this can happen anywhere. We're, we're finding our opportunities. We're having more and more opportunities, places that I've never been. We, we have clients in Australia, and I've never been there. I wish I had. It seems they—they uh, uh, they seem like special people. Mm-hmm. A little weird, but you know, I'm very <laughs> weird too. So I'm very weird, uh, just as much as uh, Australians are. So all, all to say that in today's world, this is this is the reality. Geography does not matter as much anymore as it did. You know, uh, I'm not a client of yours, but uh, we've never seen each other. And yet, uh, there we are talking to each other and some people listening. And, and it's crossing the border. Mm-hmm. Although we cannot cross the border, neither of us. <laughs> Not right now, anyway. No. And, and, <laughs> and, and the pandemic is forcing us to accelerate the process of doing it differently. Yeah. We need to keep on providing products and services and more and more we will not see each other it's it's a reality another lesson learned 
that I heard there was the importance of socializing your goals over social media and, and LinkedIn and other social media platforms. I'm assuming it was, you know, hey, LinkedIn, we've got a great product, come get to know us, kind of socializing. It's mostly, I'd say it's 90% LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. It's a business social media platform. And thank God it's there. It's far from perfect, but thank God it's there. And most people view LinkedIn as a recruitment tool. I Mm -hmm. think at least half of their business is this. But it's an excellent tool for awareness. We, we, we've been putting content about our, it's called a, the content marketing strategy. We've mm-hmm. been putting content on LinkedIn for many years, right. four times a day, five days a week, 50 weeks a year. Right. During Christmas time, I take a break. Good. <laughs> and taking a break for entrepreneurs is just three hours of work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when nobody sees you, then you go and take care of your emails. And, and, and we've grown, I've grown the number of my followers to over 20,000. I think I'm close to 22,000. And oh, most fantastic. of them are, yeah, yeah. Most of them are architects, uh, program managers, portfolio managers, and business analysts. And, and we provide content that is that people want to read and architects and, and business analysts you know if, if you have a diagram in an article or a video they tend to be freaks about those diagrams and they click <laughs> my biggest post i believe there was 25,000 people that read it 25,000 for an architect document but think think of all the traffic that that's bringing to yes or or potential traffic that that's bringing to benchmark yeah and our policy is out of the four posts today one is pushing our services or product and the other three are uh, meant to educate inform the followers so I, I was reading uh, in a book yesterday, and uh, the chapter was on sort of socializing change. And, and the they gave an example of one company that maybe had had six corporate speech, speeches in various forums talking about a, a change. Whereas if you're socializing that change through speeches, through blog posts, through emails through meetings and and etc you're going to get the message out much much quicker and people are going to buy into it much easier and and it sounds like that that's the experience that you're having with uh, benchmark yes if if we would have been funded we would have done advertising targeted advertising to business architects but one linkedin ad if you click on it it's 6 bucks it's a very expensive. So we had no choice. Since we were uh, bootstrapped, we needed to find another way. And content marketing was the way for us. And um, for those of you that are interested in this approach, uh, all we had is is a buffer. It allows you to... I, I do my reading on Sunday, and then I do the scheduling. I schedule the four every day using that on various platforms. 
mostly LinkedIn. I do other platforms. Twitter is, is we have followers there, but not a lot. And uh, architects uh, are not fond of Twitter. Uh, Twitter is made for journalists and politicians, mostly, as, as you probably know, Tracy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. So I'm hearing a lot of things that I think are important for individuals in their careers through the example that uh, Benchmark is providing there, because you're talking about needing to make adjustments in ways that are going to bring you the most value and the most return on your investment. And, and I think that there's lot a lot that can be learned as people are pursuing their own sort of personal transformation about taking risks and about getting the right return for the right investment and and that kind of thing. So as as we get ready to sort of sign off, what are some other things that you might share for folks who are perhaps trying to uh, sort of personally transform themselves, especially in the time of COVID? Hang in there. I uh, remember at the beginning of the um, COVID-19 crisis, receiving an email from LinkedIn from an architect in Denmark. Her husband and her wanted to move in Canada. And it was in March of this year. And she wanted to let go of her job and start brand new in Canada. And I said to her the following, I don't think you're aware. And many people, especially younger crowds, they don't know about recessions. It's, it's tough. It's extremely tough. And uh, if you've got a job, hang in there. Keep it. Be nice to your boss. <laughs> and, and, and pray to God that you'll keep it. And, and yet be, be, be open to what's out there and prepare for plan B should there be bad news coming up. And, and I said to the lady, it's the worst time for you to move in Canada. We, we love immigrants. We don't make enough kids. Americans, you do a lot of kids. In our case, we don't make enough. And we have no choice but to have lots of immigrants. And there's plenty of space in, in Canada. But now, this year, and probably next, is not a good time. Keep your job. And as those of you that are in transition and have lost their job, all I can say is try to find another one. And if things are slow to materialize, my sister, again in Denmark, she's in tourism. She lost her job. And what she's doing is uh, trying to find a job and starting her own little commerce online. And she's very focused and a little too narrow. I've, I've told her to expand a little her line of product and maybe her geography. But you know, she's, got, she's handling two things at once and see what, what will stick. There's the reality is is you're never in perf perfect control of 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 your agenda. Opportunities will come up. You don't know which one, and if you have one, jump on it and do whatever you can to make it happen. The trick is to recognize them quickly, 
and promptly and then act upon them quickly. And the same is, is true with, with entrepreneurs. Those that have the most difficulty are those that cannot recognize an error. If you're quick in recognizing that you've done something wrong and you know what it is and you know what to do to repair it, the quicker you, 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 you'll materialize your success. Uh, if you cannot recognize any of your failures, you'll never be a good entrepreneur. You've got to be able to recognize your failures quickly. You can ask the CEOs of Tesla, of Facebook, or anyone else. They made tons of errors, but were able to recognize it and react upon it quickly. And And reacting is something that... You understand very well, but recognizing that you've made a mistake is very difficult. Yeah, your ego takes a beating, and but you've got to do it. I, th I think that was a perfect pronouncement there. Certainly, I believe that now is a great time for opportunity. But as you say, make sure that you're taking the right risks and recognizing opportunities when they come. And if they're not coming, hang in there until they do come and, and socialize yourself and your message and keep, keep putting yourself out there one foot in front of the other every day. I have very much enjoyed our conversation, a lot to ponder on. So Greatly appreciate your time today. So what is coming up next for you? Uh, more of the same. <laughs> Four so posting a day, consulting <laughs> and emails and sending proposals and winning some and hiring. More of the same, Tracy. Great. Uh, and this, this obviously in my family. They're uh, young adults or uh, adolescents and they've got to make their own mistake. It's hard to let them do that, but they have to and help them get up again. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, providing encouragement uh, as, as we keep moving forward. So, And uh, the best place for folks to find you is on LinkedIn? It is. If you type Daniel Lambert, you will probably find me and, and then ask to connect or follow me. And if you ask to connect, if you're an architect, an analyst, or in, in the industry we're involved with, odds are very high that I will connect with you. If you're a salesperson, <laughs> odds are much lower. I can attest to your willingness to connect and uh, help others. And uh, I know that I reached out to you on LinkedIn, and I appreciate uh, you responding and sharing your time with us today. So thank you. For those of you listening, uh, your call to action is to hang in there, keep moving forward, hang in there. This time will pass and there will be opportunities ahead. Um, if anything that we talked about resonated with you today, please shoot me an email at Tracy, T-R-A-C-I-E at traceabilitypodcast.com or reach out to me on LinkedIn at Tracy Edwards would be very interested in connecting and encouraging each other along the way. Mm -hmm.